This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We're continuing our rewatch of The Leftovers with the finale for Season 2, I Live Here Now. My name is Justin Hamilton, and I'd just like to say, fix that Jesus, here at Big Squid. joining me today for the finale of season two of The Leftovers. I am super keen to get into it, but a quick bit of news. This has all come together very much at the last second, but you may have heard on the last episode this week that I realised that the podcast after this one is our 100th podcast. It's been four seasons, so if you add them all together... You're listening to number 99 at this very moment. That's how numbers work, I hear. Uh, but because I do seasons, it kind of creeped up on me. So I didn't really want to let it pass. It's like 100 episodes. We should do something fun. The podcast was originally only going to be about the HBO Watchmen series. So it's kind of a bit of a surprise when I think about it that we got here. But I'm wrapped that we're here. And I thought, well, let's... Let's do something. So what I'm going to do is tomorrow I'm going to record a two-hour podcast that will be me watching one of my favourite movies. Uh, It's a movie that kind of changed everything from when I was a kid. It was a gateway to more grown-up fare, I guess, and it was a movie that I... I kind of found on my own. It wasn't like, you know, everyone was talking about it. I saw the trailer for this film and then I decided, man, I really want to see that. And then I became completely obsessed with it. And it was one of the first times I kept going back to see a movie at the cinema. That film is The Untouchables, starring Kevin Costner, Sean Connery, Robert De Niro and Andy Garcia and a few other actors that you will recognise when you see them. So I'm going to record it tomorrow. And then I'm going to upload it on Saturday, the 3rd of July. Now, you can listen to the podcast whenever you want. Uh, You don't have to do what I'm about to suggest. But 
at 8pm Eastern Standard Time in Australia. I am going to watch the movie again and you can listen to the podcast while you watch the movie at the same time. And then what I'm also going to do is start a thread on our private Facebook page so we can all write to each other and have a remote viewing party. Does that sound like something you would like to do if you're free, I guess? I'm in Sydney, so I'm currently in quarantine. I'm in isolation. Everything's fine. Don't don't worry about me. I'm I'm very comfortable in this situation. But I thought it might be nice to be hanging out with some mates and, you know, how else do we do it? I don't know how else we can do it. That would be fun. So by the way, if you can't do this, that is more than fine. I will produce the podcast in a way that it will just work as a normal podcast. But if you'd like to listen along while we watch The Untouchables and join us on this Facebook thread, it'd be great to have your company. Uh, if you're not a member of our private page, don't stress. Anyone can join. It is just a private page because that way we can talk about things and not worry about spoilers like, you know, have comments on Loki or this leftovers rewatch, etc. And I feel like if it's on the open page, you know, someone might come along and be thinking, oh, maybe I want to check this out. And then they see something that ruins what we're watching. So that's why we've got the private page. So anyway, anyone can join. And if you would like to be a part of it, just... I'll keep an eye out for everything and uh, I'll, I'll get you in ASAP. And it sounds like fun, right? I hope so. I'm sure it will work. Anyway, let's give it a go. Come along and celebrate 100 episodes of the Big Squid podcast. Okay, let's get into this brilliant episode. God, I just love this series so much. It's the finale of of Season 2 of The Leftovers, entitled, I Live Here Now. If you want to get out of here, all you have to do is sing. I don't believe you. Why not? Because it's stupid. Ah, the trial. It's beneath you. It's not elegant enough. Too easy. You pushed a little girl into a well. You don't want to sing. We return to the beginning. Kevin, Nora, Jill and Lily leave the Murphy household after celebrating John's birthday. Evie gives her father a present and tells him to open it later. She tells him it is the best present he'll ever receive. Evie joins her friends in the car, music blaring. We join the girls inside and we watch as their faces change shape, take a new form, determined and dour. The girl driving begins to silently weep, so Evie leans forward, turns off the stereo and wipes away her tears. She pulls out a notepad and writes on it, Don't. They arrive at the waterhole and begin to put their plan into action. They place their phones in the car, turn the stereo up loud and lock the doors. From the boot, they remove their bags and a pair of bolt cutters. The three girls remain silent, and as they're about to leave, they look out at the waterhole and they see someone there. It is Kevin, standing on the edge, holding a cinder block in his arms, the rope binding the two together. He looks at the girls and then jumps in. The girls watch as he sinks and the water becomes still. The girls set off on their mission. 
The water begins to ripple, and soon there is a rumbling noise. The water churns and bubbles, but before it can disappear, we cut to the earth where Kevin is crawling out of his grave. We're back in the present. Michael finds Kevin and drags him out of the dirt. Michael tells Kevin he's been dead for about eight hours. He buried Kevin because that was what his grandfather Virgil told him to do. Kevin is sorry to hear that Virgil is gone, but says he helped him on the other side, a place that manifested as a hotel. Michael wants to know if he saw his sister there, and Kevin tells him that he didn't. But he did see her somewhere else. Kevin realises he needs to talk to John now. Erica finds John sitting downstairs, staring at his birthday present, still unopened. He refuses to open it, but in a moment of frustration, Erica grabs it and opens it herself. Inside is a dead cricket. John smiles. Evie found the cricket. Erica points out that can't be true, that the cricket was making noise all through the night when Evie disappeared and John and Michael went looking for her. This doesn't make sense to John. Why would Evie do this? Erica tells John it is because you just wouldn't let it go. Fuck you, says John. Before a fight can ensure, there's a knock at the door. Rangers have turned up to inform John that they have found a match to the handprint on the door of the teenager's car. It belongs to Kevin Garvey. John grabs his gun and races over to Kevin's house with the Rangers in tow. He knocks on the door and is confused when Laurie answers. John wants to know where Kevin is, but Laurie doesn't know. Jill comes to the door and says that Kevin will be home soon. John isn't too sure. Yet behind them, Kevin has arrived, with Michael in tow. Kevin is calm, measured. He wants to talk to John because he has something important to tell him. But John doesn't want to talk here. He wants to talk somewhere neutral. Kevin tells Jill and Laurie that everything will be okay, just to wait in the house. Before Kevin and John can leave... Michael approaches his father and implores him to listen to what Kevin has to say. Michael then returns to his house where his mother is waiting for him. Erica is confused, but Michael doesn't want to stay there. He wants to go to church, where his faith is strongest. He doesn't let anyone know about the night he's just experienced. Erica lets Michael in, looks over at Laurie, a woman she's never seen before. The two women acknowledge each other and wave, uncertain, unsure. Laurie follows Jill inside and tries to talk to her, but Jill won't have it. She rejects her mother, just as her mother once rejected her. Laurie tries to make Jill understand that her father needs help. That is why she is there. But if Jill doesn't want her to stay, she'll leave. Jill thinks for a moment and decides to do what her father asked them to do, which was to stay in the house. Jill goes upstairs and Laurie makes her way to Mary's bed. She hops on top, finds the remote control and presses the button so the bed can sit up and lay down. This is the only part of Laurie's life she can control at this moment. Nora is beginning her day and trying to keep the rituals that Matt carried out for Mary. Lily is crying and Mary is still unmoving, vacant. The song that Matt plays every morning begins to drive Nora crazy, so she turns it over to talk back radio. She hears a man talking about losing his wife after the departed, how he tried to do whatever he could to make their marriage work, but she didn't want to be with him. The loss that they both felt was too much for her. The host tells him, you can't fix people, but if you need fixing, you can turn to Jesus. Nora snaps and smashes the radio to the ground. Fix that, Jesus, she yells at the smashed radio. 
Then suddenly there's another rumbling and a new tremor rolls through Jarden. Nora covers the baby and Mary doing her best to protect both of them as the shelves crack and items fly all about the house. Eventually the tremor subsides and from behind Nora a voice calls her name. She turns around and it is Mary. She wants to know where Matt is. Mary is finally back amongst the living. Out in the park, Matt prepares for his day by shaving. He looks into the mirror and sees the reflection of Nora pushing Mary in her wheelchair, Lily in her harness. Mary is smiling and Matt suddenly realises she is back. Is this real? he asks. Mary and Matt talk. He's so happy. But then he realises she is out of the park as she has to go back inside immediately. Nora tries to calm Matt down. He's worried about the baby. But Mary doesn't know she's pregnant. Mary, as you can quite well imagine, is shocked. He asks her if she remembers waking that night and how they talked and made love. Mary remembers all of it. That is the night that Mary became pregnant. They are both so happy and Nora tells Matt to take 10 minutes, have some time with Mary while she changes Lily, and then she'll take Mary back inside the town. Nora walks off to find a spot and walks past a strange-looking woman who lives in the camp. She tells Nora that Lily isn't her baby. But Nora walks on, unperturbed. Nora is so busy ignoring the woman, she walks past Tommy. He watches her walk by and turns to Meg. Are you worried about your family? Meg asks. There is no family, Tommy says, repeating the guilty remnant motto, but with little conviction. Meg pulls Tommy in close, kisses him on the neck and says he is wrong. Meg tells him that family is everything. Meg gets into her car and drives up to the bridge where the rangers pull her over. It turns out the town is closed today because it is the anniversary of the departed. Meg thinks this is hilarious and tells the ranger she has 35,000 pounds of explosives in the back. She puts her foot on the accelerator and drives through the barrier, her car pulling a caravan behind her. She stops on the bridge and gets out of the car. Police and rangers are screaming at Meg to get on the ground as they call for backup. Meg complies. She lays on the ground, and as the police run over to her, the door to the caravan opens, and we see three figures begin to walk out, their feet dressed in white. Meg smiles. John takes Kevin to where the dogs are left in quarantine. Even though John is heated, Kevin is calm. He's been to the other side. He's confronted his demon. He now returns to the living, full of knowledge. He knows what happened to Evie and her friends on that fateful night. He tells John that the girls staged their disappearance. John is confused. Why is Kevin only telling him now? Kevin replies that he only just remembered. John still doesn't understand. Kevin explains that he died and returned to life. And by returning, he remembered. You see, Kevin had a problem and Michael took him to see Virgil because he knew he could help him out. John refuses to believe this story. There is no way that Michael would be in contact with Virgil. He needs Kevin to prove it. So Kevin does. He tells John that he knows what Virgil did to him when he was young, that he feels terrible that John had to endure that. John denies that anything happened with Virgil, but you can tell by the pain on his face, the anguish in how he holds his mouth, the way his eyes betray him, that he is lying. This is the problem with John. He refuses to believe. He can't believe. He won't believe. So he changes tact. If what Kevin is saying is true, why would Evie do this? She loves her family. There is no way she would put the family through this. Kevin doesn't pretend to know the why. Just that 
what they did is a fact. John tells Kevin to take a guess as to why Evie would do this. At first, Kevin doesn't want to. But John insists. So Kevin says, maybe she didn't love you. He continues to talk, but John has had enough. He pulls out his gun and he shoots Kevin. John is now in shock. He walks out into the open air, stunned, lost. Before he can realise what is happening, a car pulls over with a ranger inside. He says to John, it's Evie, follow us. John runs after them towards the bridge and there he sees his little girl, Evie, with her friends. He calls out, but the rangers hold him back and soon his joy turns to anguish as he knows there is something wrong. They're dressed in white. They smoke. They're ignoring the crowds on either side of the bridge. Down in the park, Nora borrows a pair of binoculars and watches as the girls stand defiantly in front of the caravan. They hold up a sign that reads, One Hour. The digital clock in the park ticks over and begins to count down. Matt is worried. He needs Mary back in the town before the bridge explodes to save their baby. The people in the park understand that there is a bomb in the caravan and it is going to explode in less than 60 minutes. They begin to cheer. Blow it up. Blow it up. At church, Erica and Michael sit in silence and take in the sermon. The priest talks about how on that fateful day of the sudden departure, nobody in Jarden knew until they began receiving phone calls, text messages, watching the news. They were still here. Michael's face is in anguish. He stands silently and walks towards the pulpit and whispers quietly into the priest's ear. He needs to speak. He needs to speak truth. He knows that Evie and her friends staged their departure. He has something to say. He won't say this, but he tells the story that his mother likes to tell everyone about the night that young Evie and Michael were having a bath, how she'd turned the water on so it overflowed and ran down the stairs, how Evie explained she did this because she wanted to see what would happen. Yet this isn't the truth. Michael reveals that on that night in the bath, Evie was crying so loudly and was in such anguish because their father had disappeared. This was around the time he'd gone to jail for trying to kill Virgil. Her crying was so intense that Michael turned on the taps to drown out Evie. Michael explains that while no one in Jarden disappeared on October 14th, they disappeared before and they disappeared after. This place is living a lie. It was not spared. Behind them, the doors open, and there stands John, his face etched in pain. Erica looks up and follows him to the bridge. Once again, the rangers hold back John, but Erica sneaks through and runs and runs and runs until she finally is opposite Evie. She hugs her daughter. She tries to look into her daughter's eyes. She tries to make contact, but the girls give Erica nothing. Erica screams at them. She doesn't understand what is happening. Down in the camp, Nora watches this all play out. The strange woman from earlier confronts Nora about Lily not being her baby. Fuck off, says Nora. (laughs) God, I love Nora. (laughs) The clock continues to count down. With 90 seconds to go, some of the people in the camp begin to strip away their clothes and change into garments of all white. The camp has been infiltrated by the guilty remnant. As the clock begins its inexorable march towards zero, Erica yells at her girls that if this caravan is going to blow up, she will go with them. She pushes the teenage girls to one side, rips open the door and slips inside. But soon she emerges with information. The 
caravan is empty. There is no bomb. The clock hits zero and the guilty remnant begin their march. They stream across the bridge and use bolt cutters to open the gates. There are so many of them, the rangers can't push them back, can't hold them at bay. Soon they're overwhelmed. Erica turns to Evie and says, Why are you doing this? I don't understand. Evie looks back and writes a two-word reply. You understand. Down in the park, Matt watches as other people in the camp see this as an opportunity to cross into Jarden. With only Mary and the baby's safety in mind, he takes this as his chance too. Nora yells at Matt to wait, but he takes her so quickly she barely has time to find her bag and pick it up. But as she does this, the strange woman who is obsessed with Lily once again declares the baby isn't Nora's while grabbing Lily out of her arms and runs off. Nora doesn't waste any time and chases after her, but the crowd is tall, the crowd is thick with people, and Nora loses sight of her little girl. She can still hear Lily crying and makes her way onto the bridge following the sound, and suddenly she sees her, Lily, on the ground, people running over her, nearly stepping on the little girl. Nora pushes her way to Lily and leaps onto the ground to protect her. People stomp on Nora's back. They step over her. They kick her on their way into miracle. And then suddenly a voice and a hand reaching down. The hand grabs Nora and pulls her to her feet. It's Tommy. He shepherds the two of them into the caravan where they'll be safe. Outside of the caravan, people stream into miracle. We fade to white. A dripping tap, an overflowing bathtub, the water gushes and Kevin emerges clutching at his chest where he's been shot. He slips onto the tiles and stands up. He doesn't have a bullet hole. He's back in the hotel. It takes a moment for Kevin to understand where he is. Motherfucker, he yells. He makes his way into the room and turns on the TV, but there is only static. He calls out to his father, but there is no response. He tries to use the remote, but there are no batteries inside. I'm not fucking doing this again, he yells. He opens the wardrobe and there are the same four uniforms from before. He looks at the suit and then at the Mapleton police uniform. On the badge it reads, Garvey. He dresses in the uniform and then the phone rings. It is someone from downstairs. They ask if this is Kevin Garvey. There's a police officer in trouble and even though they know it isn't his jurisdiction, can he come and help? Kevin makes his way downstairs. When he arrives in the lobby, there is nothing happening, just people milling around, drinking, talking. A karaoke competition takes place in the corner. The host is the man from the bridge. He asks Kevin if he'd like to come and sing, but Kevin declines. A woman takes her opportunity and begins to sing Angel of the Morning. Kevin confronts the host, but he doesn't know who Kevin is. Kevin reminds him of the bridge and the host smirks. It turns out the uniform threw him. Kevin explains he has to get back, but the host asks why. Kevin needs to get back to his family, who he loves very much. The host asks why Kevin should be allowed instead of everyone else present in the hotel. Because I deserve to, says Kevin. He wants to know what he has to do to return to them. The host explains it is simple. He has to sing. Kevin looks at the host. He doesn't believe that is all he has to do. The host smirks again. Why? Is it too simple? Not elegant enough? Kevin pushed a little girl into a well, but he's too afraid to sing. On stage, the woman offers the microphone to Kevin. He looks at the host and makes his way to the stage. He has to spin the wheel to see which song he will have to perform. 
and the wheel stops on Simon and Garfunkel's Homeward Bound. The song begins. At first, Kevin is uncertain, awkward, but as the song progresses, his life flashes before his eyes. Random moments, smoking alone on the sidewalk, the National Geographic magazine his father insisted he read. The song continues to remind him of his life when he was alive. He sees Laurie, Jill and Tommy back at his father's party together when he was incapable of being happy. Kevin begins to cry, but he doesn't stop singing. Homeward bound, I wish I was. Homeward bound. Home where my thoughts escaping. Home where my music's playing. Home where my love lies waiting silently for me. And as he sings those words, Nora's face flashes before him, smiling, full of unconditional love, silently waiting for Kevin. The song ends, Kevin closes his eyes, and he wakes in agony in the quarantine area, a bullet hole in his stomach. He slowly gets up off the floor and sees the crushed bullet behind him. It passed straight through his body. All the dogs are gone except for his own, patiently sitting there. Kevin leans over and hugs his dog. Thanks for waiting, says Kevin. He makes his way outside and is confronted by the night. The town has been ransacked. The welcome to Jarden sign is on its side ablaze, the red flames crackling and lighting up the dark sky. Kevin takes this in and turns around to see his dog watching from afar. He calls for the dog to come over, but instead the dog turns and runs toward the bridge, away from Miracle. Kevin is now alone. He walks into the town past injured men and people fucking in the street. He makes his way into the welcome centre and finds the guilty remnant, sitting around, smoking, relaxed. They've had a big day, a successful day, and standing in the middle is Meg. What are you doing here? Kevin says to Meg. She asks him the same question in return. I live here now, he replies. Meg smiles at him and begins to sing the Jarden song, the song about this being a miracle town, a town that was special because it was spared. Kevin walks away and leaves them behind. He isn't interested in the guilty remnant. He makes his way through the town. The people are partying, riding, a bus on fire, people drinking and yelling, overturning objects. The city centre a mess with the man in the tower looking down at the craziness below. Kevin makes his way to the emergency centre, but there is nobody inside. He grabs what he can to clean up his bullet hole, but as he leans against the wall, he slips down, a mess of blood tracing his descent. Kevin begins to pass out. Then a voice calls out, a familiar voice. It is John looking for Erica. He finds Kevin and is in shock. He makes his way over to Kevin and looks down. I killed you, he says. Nope replies Kevin. John asks to see the wound and doesn't understand why Kevin hasn't bled to death. Kevin doesn't understand either, but confesses how much it hurts. John helps Kevin clean the wound, but as he does so, he begins to cry. I don't understand what's happening, says John. Me neither. It's okay, replies Kevin. And then a moment later, he adds again, it's okay. John walks Kevin home with Kevin leaning on his neighbour. They arrive at their homes and John looks at his. He's worried. What should he do if there's nobody there? What if there's nobody waiting for him at his home? Then you come over to my house, says Kevin. John walks to his home up the stairs and stops at the front door. He looks back at Kevin and waves. Kevin responds with a wave of his own. 
Then Kevin makes his way to his front door, but suddenly there is another rumble, another tremor, and Kevin falls to the ground as the earth groans and the town sighs. It eventually subsides, and Kevin slowly gets to his feet. He walks up the steps to his home and opens the door to the living room. Kevin looks around and sees his daughter Jill, his ex-wife Laurie, his friends Matt and Mary, his adopted son Tommy, his adopted daughter Lily, and then he sees the love of his life, Nora. You're home, she says. Kevin looks at her, smiling, crying. Yes, Kevin is finally home. So good. And like, I just love this so much. (laughs) I just love this so much. It's so good. When I first watched The Leftovers, I was convinced that it was going to be the final episode. Like this episode in particular, I thought that's it. It's done. Even though the series was receiving plenty of critical acclaim and there was a consensus that the second season was even better than the first, the viewing numbers were still pretty low. And with that in mind, I was pretty confident they were going to stick the landing because of how they finished the first season. So you might remember that I told you that I thought back then it was going to be a one and done series. It just didn't have anyone watching it. So I was like, you know, maybe it'd be like, you know, that first season of True Detective, one story. That was great. What a, what a, what a perfect season. Like, you know, I'm pretty happy with that if that's all it is. And then season two was announced and I was wrapped. So if the viewership wasn't going to improve, I couldn't see why HBO would bring it back for another season. And to be honest, I was content. I I had so much faith that they were going to stick the landing, as I said earlier. And uh, by the way, when I say content, what I mean was that I was prepared for it to end. And I just, I just knew that they would do a good job. But while I was watching it, I was full of trepidation because if there's no extra season, there's no reason to keep characters alive. And I was worried where the characters would end up. And for a show about grief and loss, I was just prepared for something awfully sad to happen. And then Kevin was shot and my first reaction was, yep, there it is, you sons of bitches. Anyway, let's get to that a little bit later. There is a concentric pattern to this episode that gives us not only a guide to the stories of the individuals, but also ties up season two and in the process connects it to season one. Our first season takes us back to the beginning, but now we see it from the teenage girl's point of view. And we have a much larger idea of how they moved, what they were thinking, how well planned this all was. Remember in the first episode that weird moment where after they played in the water hole where they were laughing, joking, slightly poking fun of the man collecting the water? Do you remember I said to you, just just keep this in the back of your head, when they get into the car and they drove off in silence? It was a weird moment back then, but it is a moment of truth that sits in our heads and allows us to know this moment where they turn up in the caravan hasn't come from out of nowhere. That little scene and their decisions were in the DNA of the story from the very beginning. They're so disenfranchised and focused on their mission that they barely bat an eyelid when Evie sees her new neighbour in what appears to be a suicide attempt. Like, you know, so, so that little scene in the car allows us to go, yep, this was always going to happen and this was always embedded in the, in the tale. So when, when you do see them for the first time, uh, that they're still alive and that they would be 
teamed up with the Guilty Remnant, it makes sense because we've already known that there just wasn't something quite right. Um, Also, that's the first time we've seen Kevin in his sleepwalking state and it is mildly terrifying to see that blank look before he throws himself into the water with the cinder block and rope dragging him down into the darkness below. We see the tremor that drained the water hole and then we return to Kevin being born from the earth via a new tremor. Are the tremors coincidences or are they proof of a divine power striking our earthly plane? That's up to you to decide. I know what I think, but there's, I don't know, some thoughts on the series I like to keep to myself. I like to share a lot, but I don't like to sort of say anything that might, you know, tip you one way or the other. Uh, For Kevin, he's lucky to have Michael there, a young man of faith, a young man who believes in the afterlife. He accepts the truth Kevin brings back with him, but has his faith tested in another way? Kevin not only didn't see Evie at the hotel, but he did see her on that fateful night. And when the two return to their homes the following day, Michael is shaken. He finally understands that while the town celebrates nobody disappearing on the day of the departure, that doesn't mean people haven't disappeared before or after. And not just physically, but emotionally as well. You can celebrate a miracle, but don't let the stories you tell yourself blind you to what else is happening about you. When he rises at church and tells the story about what really happened with Evie in the bathtub, he is pointing out that even his mother was blind to what was really happening. Michael loves his mother, but he has learned an important lesson. You feel from this moment on his faith won't be weakened, but it will definitely become sharper, more focused. And once again, isn't this a series about the stories we tell ourselves to move forward with our lives, to deal with our sadness, to understand our grief? It wasn't just Erica who was blind to Evie's pain, it was Michael as well. His faith blinkered him to the truth he knew. I have faith that Michael from here will be an even better person because he not only learns a truth, but he also has the strength to embrace it, no matter how sad he is in the moment. We return to the circles within circles. On the night Evie disappeared, she gave her father a present and told him not to open it until she was gone because it was going to be the greatest present he ever received. John can't open the present because he can't move forward. Has John ever found a way to grow? Has he ever wondered if he was wrong, and if so, how he could be better? John would rather die on a hill than admit there is uncertainty in the world. He he lives by certainty, which is ridiculous because in our world, there is a lot of uncertainty, and especially in a world where 2% of the world's population disappeared. He's constantly circling the darkness in his soul, and now he's about to fall through to the other side. When Erica finally snaps and opens the present, two things happen. We see that Evie would lie to give her father some peace of mind over something that was inconsequential. Like, who gives a fuck about a cricket, right? You have your family in front of you. Pay attention to them. This is the problem with John. This is why Erica wanted to move on. But like the cinder block that drags Kevin to the bottom of the waterhole, the excuse of her children are what Erica has tied herself to and allowed them to drag her so far down that she too is drowning. That's our first circle here. Then our next circle is the present was given on the night Evie disappeared. Now that it is open, Evie will return, but not in the way that her parents will understand and not in a way they will recognise. 
more circles appear. The handprint has been identified. It belongs to Kevin. This was a circle that was always going to close. And in John's mind, a mind that is full of rage, that circle is going to turn into a noose. When Kevin arrives home, it is the calmest we've ever seen him. He is ready to explain everything. He has a new confidence to him that he never had before. But even when Michael tells his father to listen, we know this is probably not going to end well. Another circle. On the day of the departed, Nora was with her family, desperately attempting to get their day started and hoping for news about a job. Then her family disappeared and a new story began. A terrible story for Nora, a story that she wanted no part of. Now we find her with a new version of her family and it is just as chaotic. A crying baby, a catatonic sister-in-law, a ritual to carry out for her absent brother. Her fears that she has followed a madman to a city of miracles. On the day of the departed, Nora lost her family, but this time she welcomes back her family. On this date, Mary returns, and the joy in Nora's face is gorgeous. The acting of Carrie Coon is exquisite. Not only does Mary return, but by taking her to see Matt, he returns as well. I have to say, it is a relief to hear that Mary did return for one night and that they did have sex while she was awake before returning to her state. I always believed Matt. I, I honestly didn't think that he had slept with her while she was catatonic, but, you know, goddamn, you're prepared for the worst, right? His desire to get Mary back inside shows that his love for his wife has never wavered. He may have questioned his faith that she would return, at times even begging for signs, but he loves Mary very much, and now they are reunited. Like finding a missing piece of a jigsaw that attaches the sides, Nora's family becomes just a little more complete. Carrie is not only magnificent in this scene, but what does she mentions to Matt about the missing girls appearing? She's equal parts relieved and a little bit smug. She knew they hadn't departed, and this justifies her feelings toward everyone who believed they did. Nobody can feel Nora's pain, and this is a weakness on her behalf. She can't let the people believe what they believe because it feels like someone appropriating her pain. Nora is so caught up in her own thoughts that she doesn't take the threat of the woman seriously who keeps telling her that Lily isn't hers. Nora should have taken Lily far away as soon as possible, and when the baby is ripped from her hands, another full circle appears, one that attaches us to the opening sequence when a dying cave woman watched as her baby is taken from her hands by another woman. But Nora is tough, she's strong, and she gives chase, throwing herself over Lily to protect her. Lily might not be biologically her baby, but the love Nora exhibits for her is true. It is one of my favourite moments in the series when Tommy's hand reaches down, suggesting Michelangelo's painting, The Creation of Adam. But in this instance, the hope of life and safety is being offered to Nora from a prodigal son, Tommy, the lost soul. I like the Tommy story and understand how confused he's come to be. I understand his desperate attempt to find meaning in the world, a world where his mother failed him, his mentor in Holy Wayne failed him, his real-life father failed him. Even Kevin fails him, not because Kevin doesn't love him, but in that desperation that reveals itself in the way that Kevin smiles before the departure, that smile that lets you know he needs more from life and doesn't know where to find it. I think Tommy is a good guy, but he's easily swayed. He follows Meg because she is smart, she is beautiful, she is charismatic, and she has completely seduced him physically and mentally. There was no way he could overcome this attraction. He doesn't have the tools to know even how to. But he knows something isn't right, and when he is left to just act, he does so. 
and he does so in a good way, and he possibly saves Nora and Lily from being trampled by the crazed people who desperately want to cross the bridge into Miracle. Erica has a challenging journey in this story. She learns that she too is guilty of telling herself stories to make herself feel better. She never questioned that moment in the bathtub because that story was easier. That story didn't need unpacking. She tells herself that she can't leave John because Evie wouldn't understand, but perhaps we now know that she underestimated her daughter. Erica would rather cover up for her aggressive husband and all his crimes against people that confront him about his behaviour. She'd rather run out into the forest and bury poor birds than accept the truth. When Evie finally appears, she doesn't recognise her daughter. She pleads with her, makes demands of her, yells, cries, but in the end it is the daughter that understands and has to remind her mother, yes, deep down, she understands as well. What is there to say of Meg other than she has turned into a terrible force of nature? We unpacked a lot about Meg in the previous episode, but anyone who felt chills from the moment with the grenade and the school bus or remembers the look on her face when she spits on the ground in Jarden should know not to underestimate her. Meg knows what she is doing and she shatters the stories that this town felt comfortable in telling itself. John confronts Kevin in the pound. He can't hear what Kevin has to say. He won't hear it. He can't be told that he doesn't know his daughter. He lives his life a certain way, his way, regardless of whether it is right or wrong. He can't hear what Erica is saying when she tells him off for being incapable of letting go of the goddamn cricket. He refuses to listen to his son when he tells him to listen to Kevin. In the pound, Kevin has no hope. And when he punctures the bubble that John has encased himself in, all he can do is lash out and shoot Kevin dead. In the first episode, we finished with Kevin shooting dogs. Now this time, Kevin is shot, surrounded by dogs bearing witness to his death. Another circle is complete. And it was this closing of the loops, the circles converging on each other, that for a moment upon my initial viewing had me devastated that Kevin was dead. Just in that initial moment... And then I remembered the hotel and I hoped he would return. There were still circles that needed closing. Back in the afterlife, Kevin is furious, but he shouldn't be. We see immediately that he has learned lessons, that he is more comfortable with who he really is. Last time he chose the clothes of an international assassin, but this time he dresses himself accordingly and therefore his name is correct. Maybe his last visit wouldn't have been so traumatic if he'd dressed correctly in the first place. This was, of course, beyond where Kevin was at the time, but it also tells us now that he has made incredible progress. He goes downstairs and finds the man from the bridge. I will once again be vague about this character. You may have already worked it out, but in case you haven't, uh, I'll be vague, but just remember that, you know, he's important. Keep it in the back of your head. I wonder what he said to Kevin on that bridge. Maybe he was the person who reminded Kevin that he saw Evie and her friends on that fateful night. This time, Kevin wants to return home immediately. He believes he deserves to. He believes that is where he is meant to be. He knows this is where he wants to be. Yet when he's told to sing, he rejects the idea. He's acting like John, refusing to believe. One of the many aspects I love about Kevin and this series is that the character often says what we're thinking at home. When he's told he has to sing himself back to life, he thinks it is stupid. And I'm guessing most people at home do too. Funnily enough, this made total sense to me. Kevin has travelled to the afterlife, not unlike Orpheus, although for different reasons. Orpheus is able to play music and sing himself back to life. This is... Something that's made sense to me. It's a story I've known for a long time. And 
way back in my very first solo show, which was the year 2000, uh, I did a show called Screw You Misery, I'm the Karaoke Guy, and it was about a guy lost on a journey who finds himself in a bar surrounded by the lonely and the desperate and has to sing himself back into the world. How could this not appeal to me? <laughs> what a coincidence. And then uh, nearly a decade after the, this uh, show that I put on, I read Grant Morrison's Final Crisis. Uh, that's a superhero graphic novel set in the DC universe. And in that story, we're told that the different universes vibrate, that they make a noise on the micro and macro level. And in the end, uh, the character of Superman, who is very much a modern day myth and the closest we have to a sun god, powers a machine that will restart the universe and life itself by singing. So I've always loved this as an idea. And so when I saw that Kevin had to sing to bring himself back to life, it made sense to me. I could relate to it. I just loved this so much. And the performance and the direction is pitch perfect. When Kevin begins to sing, he's uncertain, incapable of finding the tune. He's self-conscious and feels stupid. Yet as the song progresses, he learns that it isn't whether he can sing or not. He just has to do it. He sings and loses himself. He sees his past, his mistakes. He begins to cry, but holds himself together. He makes his way through the song, Homeward Bound. A song that you could say is too literal, but in a world that is full of uncertainty, in a series that often asks you to make up your own mind as to what you believe, the literalness of the song allows us to not second guess what is happening here. Kevin, does want to return home. He has learned the lessons. He does deserve to go back to those who love him. As Kevin sings, we realise at the same time Kevin does that it isn't stupid. It is in fact quite beautiful. Another circle. Kevin returns to the living and finds himself alone, except for the dog he believed in who is now staying and believing that he too will return. Once they make it outside, the dog's job is done. The dog leaves Kevin and the mess of miracle. Just like last season when we saw Mapleton on fire, we now find Jarden in flames as well. Kevin makes his way back into the town and when he comes across the guilty remnant, he has little interest in why they're present. When Meg deflects his question and asks him why he's in Jarden, he replies simply, I live here now. There's no reason to stay. He has no interest in talking to them. He's returned from the dead. He has to find his family. A quick stop at the hospital to try and soak up the blood and there's John, lost, confused. The man of certainty is now uncertain and lost his way. The man who was determined to live his life the way he wanted now has no idea where to go. Kevin wants to find his family. John is desperate to find his. He is shocked when he sees Kevin and when he admits that he doesn't understand what is happening, you could say that is how John has spent his whole life. Rather than admit he was lost, he gathered strength by being determined, but that determination was built on a lie and therefore doesn't hold up to scrutiny in the face of chaos. Kevin is fine. His life has been nothing but chaos. If John lets him, he can show him the way forward. John might let Kevin lean on him to make his way home, but it is the offer that Kevin makes for John to come to his house in case there is no one waiting for him. As John walks to his house and apprehensively approaches the door, he turns and waves at Kevin, who in turn returns the wave. It is like the first waves they shared in the beginning of the season, but this time John is looking for solace, while Kevin has found his inner peace. Another circle closes. 
Then one final tremor has to be experienced, one final biblical shaking of the town to remind us there are greater powers at play, whether they are supernatural or physical. We are reminded of the beginning of the season when that poor cavewoman lost her family. But these are different times and Kevin returns home to find his family waiting for him. Season 1 finished with Kevin returning home and discovering he had a new family. Like last season, Kevin returns and discovers his family is so much bigger than he expected. Lost loves, extended families, the love of his life. And once again, Nora gets the final line. You're home, she says, her eyes filled with tears, her smile warm and welcoming. Kevin is overwhelmed. He is indeed finally home. The circle is complete. All right, let's get into these squid bits. Uh, John touching Kevin's wound. It feels biblical as he is essentially the Doubting Thomas. For anyone who hasn't heard that term before, a Doubting Thomas refers to the Apostle Thomas who refused to believe that the resurrected Jesus had appeared before the other 10 apostles. He becomes a believer once he can see and feel the wounds that Jesus received on the cross. The other songs on the karaoke wheel, apart from Homeward Bound, are I Would Die For You by Prince, All My Exes Live In Texas by George Strait, Living On A Prayer by Bon Jovi, uh, in what might be a little shout out to The Sopranos, Don't Stop Believin' by Journey, Angel Of The Morning by Juice Newton, Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, and Like A Prayer by Madonna. I think things worked out well for Kevin. I am particularly relieved he didn't have to sing Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, Kevin is shot in the same spot that uh, that Nora is shot and guessed, except she, of course, was wearing the bulletproof vest. That comes in handy. Uh, there is some major irony that John shoots Kevin thinking he had something to do with Evie's disappearance, and then the moment Kevin is dead, Evie suddenly appears. The priest says that on the day of the departure, nobody in Jarden noticed. Then Evie returns and all the people in the church don't notice. The allusions to Jesus continue when John sees Kevin in the hospital and shouts, Christ! (laughs) Uh, There are interesting things going on with the dog and Paddy. In season one, Kevin gambles he can civilise the dog and then tried to reason with Paddy. Then in the Cairo episode, Jewel sets the dog free while Kevin is setting Paddy free after he tied up both of them. In The Prodigal Son Returns, the dog came back to Kevin while Paddy was dead. Then in A Matter of Geography... Paddy returned to Kevin while the dog was left in the shelter. And now that Kevin has finally killed Paddy, the dog runs away. And that is the last we see of that pooch. This season saw pretty much every episode from the POV of one character. This episode changes that a bit, but the transitions stop it from being jarring by subtly suggesting who we're going to be with next. So as an example, Laurie lays in Mary's bed and presses the button up and down, and then the next season, uh, the next scene goes straight to a close-up of Mary's face. That happens throughout the episode, that kind of thing. Uh, I think we can guess that the girls don't go straight to the waterhole and instead set off to get supplies, etc. before they head there. One of those supplies is a pair of bolt cutters, which would explain when Kevin was attempting to get his handcuffs removed at the fire station, they couldn't find their pair. Sneaky Evie. She knew what she was doing. Uh, we also know from the episode No Room at the Inn that you needed a pair of bolt cutters to sneak into Jarden, uh, and this must be the way that the girls escaped. 
Evie writing you understand to her mother pays off in two ways. One is that it is a callback to what Patty said to Kevin before she killed herself in season one. It is also interesting because Erica tells Nora that Evie wouldn't have understood if she left John. Uh, In a few interviews I read, the writers knew that Kevin would have a second trip to the afterlife to pay off the handprint on the door. They didn't know what was going to happen when he arrived there, though. Tom Parada pitched the concept of Kevin having to sing karaoke for his trial, because for someone who didn't want to sing, that would be terrifying. They initially wanted Kevin to sing Madonna's Like a Prayer, but Madonna wouldn't give them the rights. And I am extremely grateful for this because I think Homeward Bound is pitch perfect. Uh, They nearly went with the platters, The Great Pretender. Um, It turns out poor old Justin Theroux disliked singing in public and was quite nervous about filming the scene. Uh, This is all according to director Mimi Leader and, you know, according to Thoreau as well. He's actually quoted as saying the karaoke scene was probably the most deeply uncomfortable scene I had to shoot. Uh, Not being naked. Well, I guess if I looked like Justin Thoreau, I'd be pretty fucking wrapped to be showing that off as well. (laughs) Uh, When the writers were planning season two, they asked Tom Perotta what a theoretical sequel to the novel would look like. They embraced the theme, wherever you go, there you are and wanted Kevin to bear witness to Jardin suffering a similar attack from the guilty remnant that Mapleton experienced. Prado himself pitched the final scene where Kevin returns home to find an even fuller house than he did in the first season finale. Uh... The earthquake in the finale seems to coincide with characters returning. So the first one is when Kevin is uh, coming back to life. The second earthquake is when Mary returns from wherever she has been, whether just catatonic or maybe she was the person in the uh, in the hotel as well. And the third is when Kevin finally returns home from his personal journey just before he finds his family. Uh, Kevin's dog being the only one with him during his death feels like a call back to the final scene in Lost. I don't care what anyone says. I fucking love the ending of Lost. And, uh, you know, we're not friends if you disagree. <laughs> There's a line in the sand. and That's where I, I'm over on this side. Uh, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Only one more season to go. I can't believe it. I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. A big shout out to Steve Mulk, who I saw online not only writing about The Leftovers, but also giving this podcast a big shout out. That is very much appreciated, Mulkster. Uh, If anyone else would like to recommend us to anyone you think who might enjoy uh, what my friends and I are doing over here, that would be greatly appreciated. No pressure, but if you would like to, that'd be cool. Remember, this Saturday, July 3rd at 8pm Eastern Standard Time, Sydney time, we're going to do the remote viewing party for our 100th episode by watching The Untouchables and listening to the podcast as well. I will... Uh, record that tomorrow. I will produce it and I will upload it on Saturday so you can have plenty of time to get it ready. Uh, You can find The Untouchables on Netflix in Australia. I don't know wherever else you are where you might be able to find it, but I'm sure it's it's a classic film and shouldn't be too difficult to find. Um, I'll keep an eye on the private Facebook page of anyone who wants to join uh, so I make sure that I get you in immediately. Um, once again, no pressure to do this with us on Saturday, but if you would like to, it'd be nice. And then we can kind of, you know, just write to each other on the, on the thread that I start and, you know, eat some snacks and have a good time. Anyway, should be fun. Uh, 
Let's finish this episode with a quote from the poet and critic Megan O'Rourke. Yet the story of Orpheus, it occurs to me, is not just about the desire of the living to resuscitate the dead, but about the ways in which the dead drag us along into their shadowy realm because we cannot let them go. So we follow them into the underworld, descending, descending, until one day we turn and make our way back. Until then. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.